1971, a young Cree woman was brutally murdered in Manitoba. Even though the perpetrators were quickly identified, it wasn't until 1987 that any measure of justice was delivered. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to the very first episode of Crime Lines. If you are listening to this, I need to tell you that this is a re-recorded version of my first episode. I see high numbers of people listening to this episode and then fewer sticking around for episode two. The first episode of any podcast is not always our best foot forward. I am three years into making this show at this point and my newer episodes are a lot better. It's not just an audio quality thing, which it can be for some people. It's the whole package, the writing, the delivery, everything. So I decided to redo it so you get a better idea of what the show is like as you go further into it, and maybe I'll retain a few more of you than I would have had you heard only the original episode. The name of the show is Crime Lines, and it is, as you may have guessed, a play on the words crime and timeline. I think it describes my storytelling style pretty well. I like to start at day one and then walk through what happened after that. This episode was originally released on May 5th, which is Canada's National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. I decided that it would be fitting to remember and acknowledge one of those women, Helen Betty Osborne, for this first episode. This turned into a little bit of foreshadowing, as I have now covered numerous missing and murdered Indigenous women cases over the last few years, from Canada to the U.S. to Australia and New Zealand. You will see those on the feed. They are marked MMI and then whatever the designation is, whether it's girl, woman, or two-spirit. So today's case is about Helen Betty Osborne, who went by Betty. She was born in July 1952 in Norway House, which is about a nine-hour drive from Winnipeg and requires you to take a ferry. So we are definitely talking a remote area. Betty was the oldest of 12 children born to Cree parents, Joe and Justine Osborne. Betty had goals to become a teacher, but none of the local schools in Norway House went past the eighth grade. If Betty or any other Indigenous child in this area wanted to go to high school, they had to transfer either to a residential school or move in with a host family in a city that had a high school. We hear a lot about Indigenous peoples in North America being forced into residential schools and missions, but I think this situation highlights a way they were being forced without being physically removed from their parents or taken into care. The Canadian government was and is in charge of education in Indigenous communities. By not providing a high school teacher or curriculum within these communities, Students who wanted the opportunity to further their education had no other choice but to leave home. Once at the residential school, students would be forbidden from using their first languages and they could only speak English. The school Betty went to in 1969 was called Guy Hill Residential School and it was run by the Catholic Church. It was five hours away from home and this distance made trips back to visit her family very difficult. 
All of the students were from indigenous communities, but none of the teachers or administrators were, which was also common in these boarding schools because one of the goals was assimilation. Betty was a little introverted and not the type to have a big, huge circle of acquaintances. Everyone in her circle was a close friend. These friends later said Betty was lonely and homesick while at the school, but for Betty, it was the hope of getting an education that kept her going. Betty lived at Guy Hill for two years before she moved to the Paw, which is about 30 minutes from Guy Hill. The Paw is not a lot bigger than Norway House if we're talking population, but it has a lot more accessibility through the highway system. You certainly don't need a ferry to get to it. It also had a public high school. The reason for the move in September of 1971 was so that Betty could attend school at Margaret Barber Collegiate. When an Indigenous student would attend school outside of their community, but they weren't at a residential school, the Department of Indian Affairs would arrange room and board with a local family. The ideal in this situation was that the family would treat the student like a member of the family, like a long-lost cousin coming to stay for a bit, maybe even like an exchange student. Often, they were treated more like boarders and not given appropriate care or supervision. In Betty's case, the couple she stayed with were William and Patricia Benson. William was Métis. The Métis trace their ancestry back to both indigenous and European roots. But the blending of the cultures happened far enough back that they have their own culture that has emerged. They are one of the three recognized indigenous people in Canada. Maybe because of William's own experiences, but the Bensons did not treat Betty like just a boarder. They cared for her and they wanted to see her happy and successful. That's a small consolation for being away from her family and having to deal with the assimilation tactics at Guy Hill, but it was definitely something. The Paw was and is a diverse community. It is a mix of white First Nations and Métis people, and at the time Betty went there, it was to some degree still segregated. The high school cafeteria had indigenous students on one side and white students on the other. Places like the movie theater would be set up the same. And indigenous people who lived in the Paw have reported for generations serious discrimination and racial profiling. These claims have been looked into, which we will get into later, and have been substantiated. One claim was that white men would throw indigenous men into the river. They would also cruise around looking for indigenous women to pick up, get drunk, and then sexually assault. Some of the girls raped were literally girls. They were as young as 14 years old. It turned out that the RCMP was largely aware that this was happening. Their reason for not doing anything was that there were rarely complaining witnesses, so how could they act? They would later come under some scrutiny for this policy because a law enforcement doesn't only enforce laws after they're broken. They are meant to try to prevent crime as well. They also didn't stop and wonder why the victims, mostly First Nations people, didn't trust them, didn't trust the police enough to come forward. 
And the answer to that was because when it did come to preventing crime, it was largely through racial profiling. Again, it was talked about in the community and later substantiated. Indigenous youths were stopped more frequently than white youth, even when just walking down the street. Like a lot of racial profiling, the police officers weren't even entirely aware they were doing it. They stopped people who looked suspicious without even being conscious of the fact that it was their own prejudices that informed their view that these people looked quote-unquote suspicious. Again, it's not just me saying this or looking for a problem where there isn't one. Decades after the events we're talking about tonight, there was a commission that was convened to look into this. This was covered in depth in their investigation, and it is all in their report. That report was a major source for this episode. The PAW in 1971 was frankly just not a safe or friendly place for Betty Osborne. Now we have enough backstory and context to move into the timeline. On Friday, November 12th, 1971, Betty had been in the PAW for about two months. Around 6 p.m. this evening, she had dinner at home with her host family, the Bensons. She then left around 7 to go visit a friend who was at the hospital. While she was at the hospital, she bumped into another friend she hadn't seen in a while, George Ross. They decided to hang out, so they went, they bought some beer, and then went back to Betty's host's home to sit down and catch up. The drinking age in Manitoba at the time was 18, so this is a perfectly normal and legal thing for two 19-year-olds to do. Around 10 p.m., Patricia Benson, Betty's host, told George and Betty that it was time to wrap up. As someone with older teens and young adults in my home, I identify with this. Just stop talking so I can go to bed. At 10.30, Betty asked Patricia if she could go out with George for a bit. Patricia told her that was fine, so George and Betty went to downtown The Paw. Betty and George were walking past a hotel when Betty saw her boyfriend hanging out in the lobby. His name was Cornelius Bigetti. He was with a group of friends, and it appeared that he was there with another girl. Betty and Cornelius had a short five to ten minute argument about this before she and George left the hotel around 11.10. Then they met up with some other friends at a nearby cafe. George, Betty, and the two friends went back to Betty's host's family, but instead of going inside, they just sat in an outbuilding shed area. They drank more of the beer that George and Betty had bought and then headed back downtown. Around 12.30 a.m., Betty and George were by themselves again, and George was ready to go home, but Betty wasn't. She still wanted to hang out, so George left, leaving Betty downtown, and we don't have a completely clear picture of what happened next. We just have a few witness statements. We know she walked past that same hotel where she had seen her boyfriend earlier, around 12.45. Betty was then again seen at a dance at the Legion around 2 a.m. At 2.15, a friend saw her walking away from the dance, possibly and very likely on her way home. But Betty never made it there. William Benson reported Betty missing to the police early on Saturday, November 13th. Betty was not the type to stay out all night. 
If you think about it, she had asked Patricia if she could go out that night, even though she was 19 and could largely do as she pleased. The RCMP detachment took the report. But Betty was not a missing person for long. Around 11.30 a.m., her body was found. Two men and a teen boy were fishing at Clearwater Lake. They arrived around 9 or 10 a.m. picking a fishing spot, which was an easy walk from the parking lot, which is where a pump house was located. And that's something I do want to mention quickly, that I know a lot of my listeners tend to look up things that I talk about and read up more about these cases on their own. So I do want to mention that this area is very close to the Paw Airport, which is a small one-strip airport. If you look this case up on your own, you will see this area referred to as behind the airport or near the pump house or at Clearwater Lake. These are essentially three different ways to describe the same location. So we have this group fishing, and about an hour or two into it, the teenager, Kenneth, got bored, and he decided to explore the woods a bit. Around 11.30, he was walking back to the parking lot when he noticed something sticking out from the underbrush. The brush was pretty thick in this spot, so he stepped closer to get a better look, and what he found was a woman's body. The police arrived and located the body, which actually wasn't easy because it was fairly well concealed. The body was found mostly naked, and the face had been beaten to the point that the woman was unrecognizable. For several hours, more than 30 people came to the morgue in an attempt to identify her. One of the people they called was William Benson, since he had reported a young woman missing that day. William said he couldn't be sure it was Betty because her face was just so disfigured. The police went to the Benson home and they used her school books to lift fingerprints. Around midnight, they were able to positively identify the victim as Betty Osborne. It seems a miracle that Betty was found and found so quickly. It was November, so people were going out to that area less and less because of the cold. There was already snow on the ground, and though Betty wasn't far from the parking lot, she was well concealed in that brush. Had Kenneth not gotten bored while fishing, her body may never have been found, or at least not until spring or maybe even summer when whatever snow fell on top of her would have melted. The RCMP detachment in the Paw called Norway House, and an officer went to inform Betty's family of her death. Years later, Betty's mother, Justine, was asked what was said to her that day. How did they break the news to her? And she said she had absolutely no clue. After hearing her daughter was dead, just the trauma of the moment and then the days and years to come had erased that memory. Betty's cause of death was ruled a stabbing. She had over 50 stab wounds, but she had also been severely beaten. Investigators wondered if the severe beating, to her face in particular, was from someone's rage or if it was to purposely conceal her identity in the event she was found. 
The murder weapon was believed to be at least one screwdriver. Possibly a second sharp instrument was used, making it look like there were possibly more than one attacker. It was impossible to tell if any additional weapons had been used on her. There was no obvious source for the blunt force trauma on her body, so that may have come from hands and feet. The only clothing item Betty had on her body were her boots. There were no physical signs of a sexual assault, but because Betty was found without clothing, the RCMP did believe this was a sexually motivated attack. Some of Betty's clothing was found at the scene a bit over 30 meters or yards away from her body, and it's possible that it was put there and dumped there after her body was. It was believed that at least some of the attack on Betty happened at the scene, but her body was moved. There was a mound of dirt near the edge of the woods, and blood evidence and drag marks make it look like she was dragged from the mount and then pulled into the underbrush. Because of the snow on the ground, they did photograph imprints of both car tire tracks and footprints. But there turned out to be two pretty big issues with the photographs. One, not all of the footprints at the scene were photographed, just the ones from the pump house to the mound. Multiple people at the scene said that there were footprints on either side of the drag marks, indicating that two people dragged Betty into the woods. However, this was not documented by the camera. The second issue was that the photographs they did have just weren't clear enough. The photographer was in the area doing photographs for a drug bust, where he would be taking pictures in a controlled environment. He just didn't have the equipment, like a flash, to take pictures outside in the fading winter light. Most of the photographs just did not have enough detail, like the ridge pattern of the shoe print, to be very useful. Early on in the investigation, a man came forward with a screwdriver he said he had found in the middle of the road not far from the scene. He said he found it around 1.15 in the afternoon on Saturday, so not long after Betty's body had been found. It's not clear if this screwdriver was linked to the murder in any way. Even today, we don't know. But it did prompt a search of that road. The day after Betty was found, a police constable found two pieces of a bra and a blood-stained paper bag in a nearby ditch. A search dog found another screwdriver near where the bra and bag were found. This screwdriver did have blood on it, which is how the dog found it. Without DNA testing, it's impossible to say whether this was the murder weapon or not, but proximity to the scene, as well as the blood on it, as well as it being similar to the suspected murder weapon. Circumstantially, I think we can say it was likely the murder weapon. The RCMP then began interviewing potential witnesses to try to retrace Betty's steps on the night she went missing. They spoke with her host family and with the friends she was with. They heard about her argument with her boyfriend. 17-year-old Cornelius Baghetti. Like Betty, Cornelius was in the paw for his education. He was from a remote 
community that almost makes Norway House look like a metropolis. Three days after the murder, the police went to Cornelius's host home and took him and his roommate to the station for questioning. Cornelius had not heard that Betty was found murdered at this point, so he had no idea why he was being taken in. They also did not tell his host family what was going on, and they did not get consent from anyone to question him, which was an issue since he was 17. So Cornelius sat down with the officers to find out why they brought him in. He was thinking something had happened with his family back home. But then the officer pulled out a photo. It was a photo of Betty's face after her body was found. And Cornelius straight up passed out, out cold on the floor. They had to revive him to continue questioning him, which is what they did. So let's just sum this up real quick. They showed a 17-year-old a picture of his deceased girlfriend's face battered beyond recognition. And then when he regained consciousness after the trauma of that caused him to pass out, they thought they should just keep interrogating him. He was only questioned for about 30 more minutes after this fainting because he was not in a great condition and he could not offer them anything. He saw Betty, they argued for a few minutes, and then he hadn't heard from her since. That's all he knew. Cornelius did remain high on the suspect list just by virtue of being the boyfriend and having argued with her that night. And that does make sense. But there was nothing else linking him to the crime. He was questioned at least one other time shortly after the murder, but he had no more information to offer them. Cornelius wasn't the only lead pursued early on. They looked into records to find people who had committed violent attacks. They checked into people known to have left town shortly after the murder. They even compiled lists from hotel registers and welfare records. And then they looked at people who bought alcohol that night because they did have reason to believe the murderer was drunk at the time. And we'll get to that tip in a minute, but over 1,000 names were collected this way, and one by one, they were crossed off the list, mostly because they had obvious alibis. Now, the tip that led them to believe the killer was drunk. This came from Philip McGillivary, and he was a cab driver. He was driving on the highway between downtown La Paw and the pump house where Betty's body was found. He was driving there around four in the morning on the day of the murder. This time is significant because Betty was last seen alive at 2.15. Philip said that the car in front of him was all over the place. He couldn't even pass the car because the driver, who was obviously drunk, just kept swerving so much. The car then turned down a road, almost going into a ditch on the turn. He said he remembered the license plate had the numbers 4-2 as the last two digits and that the car was light blue. In mid-December, a month after the murder, they sent Philip to a psychologist to see if hypnosis could get him to recall 
the rest of the plate number. Under hypnosis, he said the number was 5342, but he couldn't remember the letters. So the RCMP did a motor vehicle search for a car with those plate numbers. 28 registrations came back. The only one of them that was registered in the PAW, where Betty was last seen leaving the Legion dance, belonged to a man named Harold Coolgan. The RCMP had this information in December 1971, but they did nothing with it until May of 1972 when they received an anonymous letter in the mail. The letter had been mailed from Marquette, Michigan on April 28, 1972. That was a good 18-hour drive from the PAW. The letter said that a man named Lee Coolgan, who was Harold's son, confessed to the murder of Betty Osborne. Lee told the letter writer that he was driving in the car with his friend and neighbor Jim Houghton and another friend named Norman Manger. There was someone else there, but the writer of the letter did not remember their name. The group had forced Betty into the car and then drove her out to Clearwater Lake. She threatened she would tell the police, so she was killed with, quote, a screwdriver, punch, or similar instrument, end quote. This letter prompted the RCMP to act on the earlier tip about Harold's car, and they got a search warrant for it. The car had actually been searched, sort of, very early on, when the RCMP was spot-checking cars in the area. The information about the plate number should have triggered a full search, but it didn't. This letter, however, did. Found in the back seat was a small piece of a bra strap, and it matched the bra found near the murder scene. Hair and blood were also found, though we are in 1972, and the technology to match these just wasn't around. If this happened today with DNA, this case would have been resolved a lot sooner. They also checked the car for fingerprints. Betty's fingerprints were not found in the car, but after five months, it seems unlikely they would have been, or if they were, they probably were very smudged. Lee's name was not the only one in the letter. There were actually three names. All three of the young men were known to be friends, and all three had been at that same Legion dance that Betty was seen at. Lee and Betty actually had a class together at the high school, but otherwise there was no direct link between these men and Betty Osborne. So who are these men? Let's start with Lee Coolgan. He was 18 years old and attended the same high school as Betty. He was known to be a nice kid when he was sober, but impulsive and sometimes violent when he drank. His family was overall well-liked in the community. The family owned a cottage at Clearwater Lake, so Lee was familiar with the area. James Houghton was 23 years old, and he lived across the street from Lee. He was attending a technical school at the time, and his family also had a cottage at the lake. James and Lee were very good friends. The third man was Norman Manger. He was 25 at the time, and he had a bit of a rougher life than Lee and James. He was largely raised by extended family. His mother had died when he was two, and his father bounced in and out of his life. He went right to work after high school and had a series of jobs until he was about 23 or 24. After that, he was largely unemployed, couch surfing with whoever would put up with him. 
On June 6th, Lee and Norman were both interviewed by the police. James had left town shortly after the murder, and no one was entirely forthcoming to the police on where he went. But in Lee and Norman's interviews, they denied everything. Norman gave an alibi of being passed out in a hotel bathroom all night, which isn't the sort of alibi that's easy to verify. Both were asked to take polygraphs, but they said no. They denied everything. They even denied being together that night, and they were released without charge. But an informant who has remained anonymous came forward and said that the fourth person in the car that night was 18-year-old Dwayne Johnston. This name was not unfamiliar to the police for a couple of reasons. First, he was in a motorcycle gang, so he had had a few run-ins with the law. And the other reason was he had popped up on two of the lists the RCMP had previously checked. He was on the welfare rolls, and he had purchased alcohol on the night Betty was out. So he was actually interviewed back in December of 1971. At the time, he told the police that they needed to go through his attorney, Darcy Bancroft. Bancroft was one of the few criminal defense attorneys in the area, so someone who had previous scrapes with the law would likely have hired him at some point. Dwayne's response was the usual response from members of motorcycle gangs. They would refuse to speak to the police about anything and everything, even if they had nothing to do with it. Because if they picked and chose when they talked and when they lawyered up, it would look suspicious when they lawyered up. But by always lawyering up, it gave nothing away. Dwayne was only 18, but he already knew to shut up and let his lawyer handle things. Dwayne was known for being a bully and a racist, with Lee Coolgan later saying that he never met anyone who hated indigenous people more than Dwayne did. The investigators had no direct links between the four men and the murder, but they were pretty sure the men were involved. There had been multiple tips coming in, naming some or all of them. In July, they searched the cottages that Lee and James had access to at the lake through their families, but nothing was found. They also asked Lee's father if they could interview him again. And I think this is notable. Cornelius, Betty's boyfriend, was interviewed twice without any parent or guardian being made aware that it was happening or why it was happening. And he was 17 with no evidence he was involved in the murder. But here they were with an 18-year-old who they had reason to suspect, and they still asked his father's permission. The different ways these two men were treated gives an indication of the difference between being indigenous in the PA in the 1970s and being white. And that is just one example. Other friends of Betty's had similar experiences where their interviews were vastly more confrontational than those of white witnesses. From the information provided by the RCMP, it seemed that these weren't even the acts of conscious bias. The officers did not appear to realize that they were treating the young witnesses more aggressively, even as they explained the ways they were treating these various people differently. While I understand implicit and explicit bias, and I do know how pervasive implicit bias can be, I have to say I'm having a hard time with the idea 
that they were completely unaware of what they were doing. And part of that has to do with how they handled the four suspects. And I think this may be the most telling part. Norman Manger was indigenous, and he was treated differently than the three white suspects. The police drove him out to the woods to an isolated area to question him. And that's something that happened with some of Betty's friends who were just witnesses. Yet all of the white suspects and all of the white witnesses were questioned at the station. It seems the treatment people got during questioning was not divided by whether they were a witness or a suspect, but rather along racial lines. By August of 1972, this case had really stalled out. James Houghton had returned to the PAW, and the police did question him, but like the others, he denied everything and declined a polygraph. Then Darcy Bancroft, the criminal defense attorney, stepped in. Acting for all four men, he wrote a letter to the RCMP telling them to stop harassing them. And that was the end of any cooperation, which really wasn't happening anyway. There was some question over how ethical it was for Bancroft to represent all four men, since they may have had competing interests here. But since none of the men were even charged, No conflict arose, and the block he put up was effective. Not that the police didn't try to get around it. In September, two investigators found Norman and started drinking with him and chatting about hunting spots. They then took him out into the woods to question him, like I mentioned before. He was afraid that the police were going to beat him up out in that isolated area, but he still said he didn't know anything about Betty's murder but he did at this point admit he was in the car with the other men that night. Before taking Norman back home, they got written consent from him for a polygraph. They had to wait, though, for the polygraph expert to arrive from Regina, Saskatchewan, because believe it or not, the rural RCMP detachment in the PAW did not have a polygraph expert sitting around. It took two days for the examiner to arrive. The police went to the bar where Norman was that day to bring him in for the polygraph, but Norman slipped out the back, which is no surprise. What Norman agreed to in the middle of nowhere when he thought the police were going to rough him up turned out to not actually be something he wanted to do. Norman went to Bancroft, and Bancroft told him what any lawyer would. Don't do it. Don't take the polygraph. So then another letter went out from Bancroft to the RCMP telling them that Norman was withdrawing consent. The RCMP managed to get another shot at questioning Lee Coolgan as well in September. He had a warrant out for violating the Wildlife Act. This was literally a pay-the-fine-and-go type of warrant. So while Lee's friend was paying the fine and filling out the paperwork, the investigators started questioning Lee about the night of the murder. Lee seemed more open to talking at this point. He said he was there, but said he didn't do anything and he was scared of going to prison. But before they could get much past this, Lee's friend had finished the paperwork and Lee was free to leave. The conversation the police had with Lee at this point, plus the letter from Michigan, plus other tips that Lee had been confessing to people, made the investigators believe that he was the weak link of the four. 
And that really proved to be the truth because over the next few years, Lee couldn't seem to stop confessing, not to the police, but to people, usually when he had been drinking. Different people were given different parts and slightly different versions of the story. But the basic story was that they had picked Betty up for sex, but she refused and things escalated. He usually put the murder weapon in Dwayne Johnston's hand. One person Lee confessed to was his wife, Arlene, who he married in 1973. In 1976, she told the police that Lee confessed to being there when Betty was murdered, and he confessed multiple times during their marriage. The RCMP could have used this information to justify questioning Lee again. It's not clear why they didn't. It's possible they didn't think they would get anything out of him, which they hadn't before. The last time they tried to talk to him was in late 1974, and it was when Darcy Bancroft died. Without a lawyer blocking them, the RCMP did take another run at both Lee and Norman. The first time they found Norman, he was drunk and passed out, and the second time, he refused to discuss Betty at all. And Lee, when they found him, he was completely hungover. They started questioning him, and he became so hysterical they couldn't get anything from him. So it is possible they didn't question him again because they had no reason to believe they would get anywhere. But it's also possible they may not have thought this was credible enough information. Arlene was in the process of divorcing Lee, and she made this statement while filing assault charges on him. But again, she wasn't the only one who said that Lee had confessed to them and confessed that he was there when Betty was killed. Not that he killed her, but that he was there. These statements were of limited use. They could be used against Lee in a trial, but not any of the other men because it was hearsay. And based on his confessions, it sounded like he was not the main aggressor and it was likely Dwayne. The Crown attorney in the PAW reviewed the entire case file in February 1977. It had been over five years since the murder. He decided that there just was not enough direct evidence. The file took up four filing cabinet drawers, yet there was just not enough here to take to trial. The case underwent a final cold case review in 1983, nearly 12 years after Betty's murder. An investigator named Robert Urbanowski took over the investigation. He worked the case review from July 1983 until March 1984. This meant reading the entire file multiple times, locating all the key witnesses and suspects, and submitting evidence for testing. Nothing new really came from this review. So Constable Urbanowski decided to start a new investigation. Wiretaps were one of the first things they did in this new investigation. They were placed in May of 1985, and the hope was to catch the men talking about the murder. As we know, Lee couldn't seem to stop talking about it. These wiretaps led to new avenues to explore, but there was no smoking gun confession on them. In June 1985, Constable Urbanowski placed an article in the local paper. It essentially went over the basics of the crime and said they were looking for more people to talk to. The most important part read, quote, 
An RCMP spokesman said yesterday, police have had a terrific response from the public on the case to date, but they are looking for more help from people in the PAW in the surrounding area, end quote. The truth was that they didn't have a terrific response from anyone. They had a handful of informants over the years, some of them anonymous, because people would not come forward due to fear. The hope was if the public thought everyone else was talking, they might think it was safer for them to open up. And it worked after the article four more people made statements. The RCMP decided it was time to push a little harder. They coordinated another round of wiretaps to coincide with some arrests. On October 3rd, 1986, Lee Coolgan was arrested in connection with the murder of Helen Betty Osborne, and this made national news. This news reached Saskatchewan, where the author of the anonymous Michigan letter that put these men on the radar saw it. She then called the police and admitted she was the one who wrote the letter and she was prepared to testify about Lee's confession. Dwayne Johnston was arrested three weeks after Lee and the police kept listening to the wires. More people were interviewed, but again, no smoking gun confessions. Lee, it turned out, was the weak link they thought he would be. He was willing to tell everything he knew after his arrest in exchange for full immunity. He said he hadn't laid a finger on Betty, but he would testify against the people who did, Dwayne Johnston and James Houghton. The Crown had a difficult decision to make. They didn't have a lot of evidence. They had a scrap of a bra strap and a small amount of blood no one could match. These linked Lee's car to the crime scene, maybe, but they didn't link anyone else to it. Lee had consistently, for 15 years, told the same basic story to people, that he was in the car the entire time the murder happened. But he did have some responsibility here. Even in his story, he aided in the abduction of Betty. So were they really going to let him walk in exchange for his testimony? They did have two witnesses who had heard Dwayne confess, and they could be used against him, but that wasn't the same as what Lee was offering them, eyewitness testimony to the events of that night. And they had next to nothing on James at all without Lee's testimony. So they gave Lee the deal. He would not be charged in any crime related to the abduction, assault, and murder of Helen Betty Osborne in exchange for his testimony against the other men. Based on what Lee told them, James was arrested on March 15, 1987. Also based on what Lee told them, Norman was never charged. So what did Lee say? We are going to go into the details of the crime. While I avoid gratuitous graphic descriptions out of respect for anyone listening who knew the victim, This does discuss sexual assault, and so I do want to give that warning. Podcast apps have a 30-second fast-forward button for a reason, and it's not just so you can skip ads. This night started with Lee, Norman, and James in the car. They bought beer that they finished, and then they stole some wine. They went out to the dance at the Legion, and they drank more while in the bathroom. When they left the dance, James was driving with Norman in the front passenger seat, 
Lee was in the back seat, so when they picked Dwayne up, he also got into the back seat. They decided together, according to Lee, to pick up an indigenous girl to drink with and then have sex. His words were to have sex. My word would be rape. Lee said they were driving around specifically looking for a target when they saw Betty. James pulled over and the men all tried to talk Betty into going to a party with them. We know from her friends that Betty did have some beer earlier that night, but from Lee's testimony, she absolutely was not drunk. Her judgment was not impaired at all, and she refused to get in the car. They decided to force her into the car, which wasn't easy because it was a two-door. Norman had to pull his seat all the way up so Dwayne could get out. Dwayne got out, grabbed Betty, and pushed her into the car. They decided to take her to an isolated area, James Houghton's family cabin. While Betty was in the back seat, she was fighting with Lee and Dwayne as they grabbed at her clothes and at her. She was being sexually assaulted and she was fighting back the whole time. At the cabin, Dwayne got Betty out of the car and began assaulting her physically. Lee's story of everyone else's involvement did change a bit over time. And I'm just going to be frank, I think it's likely that the other three men all participated to some extent. And at the very least, none of them stopped it. Betty was screaming, so Dwayne pushed her back into the car, and then they drove to an even more isolated spot, which is where her body would later be found. According to Lee, Dwayne got out of the car with Betty while the other men all sat in the car and drank. After about five or ten minutes, James got out of the car. Lee's story changed on this next point a few times, but essentially Dwayne came back to the car, got a screwdriver, and then left the car again. Lee could see Betty standing, so he knew she was alive at this point. Norman, for his part, was pretty much cowering in the front seat and was so drunk that he later really couldn't recall much of what happened. Lee was in the back seat, so he climbed over the console and got into the driver's seat. He called to Dwayne and James, saying that he was leaving, and they told him, just a minute. Then the two got in the car, and one of them said, she's dead. Lee said he then cleaned his car the best he could afterwards, and the four made a pact never to talk. Lee made this deal for immunity, so he was not tried based on any of the things he literally confessed to doing. Norman was also never tried for any crime. He had moved a seat forward so that they could force Betty into the back, so he was at least responsible for helping with the abduction. But when they reviewed the case and they saw the level of intoxication it appeared Norman was at that night, They believed he could have argued successfully that he had an inability to form intent to commit the crime. So the trial for Dwayne Johnston and James Houghton occurred in 1987. In Manitoba, the defense gets 20 peremptory challenges, meaning they can strike potential jurors without giving any explanation. Six of the 54 potential jurors were indigenous, and six of the strikes from Dwayne's attorney were used to kick them from the jury. This is actually illegal, but it still happens all the time. When prosecutors and defense attorneys don't have to give a reason why they strike someone from the jury, 
it's hard to prove that race was the sole reason. There are movements in criminal justice reform circles to bar these types of challenges. Attorneys would still be able to move to strike jurors, but all of them would be for cause. All of them would require an explanation. Lee testified against Duane and James per his immunity agreement, though his testimony altered a little from what he had originally told the police. They were all small changes for the most part, but every single change benefited James, who was his good friend. Lee even testified that the reason James got out of the car that night was to try to stop Duane from hurting Betty. He was a big guy, so it made sense that he would be the one to step in. And that change in testimony made James look a lot less culpable. Another issue at trial was the two sets of footprints along the drag path. While the police officers at the scene said they were there, the photographs didn't show them. So they were asking the jury to rely on the officer's decades-old memory. In the end, the jury found James Houghton not guilty of murder, but found Dwayne Johnston guilty of second-degree murder. Jurors in Canada are forbidden from disclosing their deliberations even after the trial is over, so we will never know why they found one guilty and the other not. It's possible they suspected James, but it wasn't beyond a reasonable doubt. There were no strong witnesses against him except for Lee, whose story made it look like Dwayne was the aggressor. At the time in Canada, lesser charges could not be included in a murder case. That's not the case now. As long as it was all part of the same crime, charges like abduction and assault can be tried along with murder. But that wasn't how it was back then. So James had only been acquitted of the murder. He could have been charged for other crimes, such as assault and kidnapping, but he wasn't. When the prosecutor was asked why not, he said it just wasn't something they usually did and he hadn't even weighed it as an option. If someone was acquitted of the murder, they didn't go back and try the lesser offenses. I imagine it's because if you don't have enough evidence to prove the crime in one trial, you likely wouldn't in another. But the evidence in this case for James that backs up the abduction and assault charges isn't the same as there was for the murder. So I do think had he been tried for the lesser offenses, he may have seen jail time. Dwayne Johnston was sentenced to life with a non-parole period of 10 years. By 1995, he had day parole and he was released in 1999 on full parole. He admitted to Betty's family that he was there that night, but he insisted he was not the one who killed her. The RCMP did investigate his claims, but they officially closed the case in 1999, saying that Dwayne's version was just inconsistent with the evidence. There were some serious concerns over the way this case was handled. The fact that they had the names of the four suspects early on, but this took a decade and a half to go to trial was a major question mark. Why? And it really matters. Manitoba has the highest proportion of Indigenous people in Canada. And if justice was not being applied evenly, that needed to change. In April of 1988, the Manitoba government created a public inquiry known as the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry. It wasn't just formed for Betty's case. Another case that was looked at was the March 1988 death 
of J.J. Harper. J.J. was a leader within the community, and he worked as the executive director of the Island Lake Tribal Council. J.J. was out in Winnipeg with friends. They were drinking, and he left, indicating he was going to take a taxi home. Around the time J.J. walked away from his friends and in the same area, there had been a stolen car, followed by a car chase with the suspect being apprehended. And I think it's important to note that the suspect, as J.J. was walking, was not currently on the loose. One of the police officers involved in the chase, Constable Robert Cross, saw J.J. walking. For some reason, he believed J.J. may be involved in the car theft. So he stopped him, asking for ID. J.J. was intoxicated. That's why he was taking a cab home. But he was also aware of his rights. We do not have J.J.'s side of things, but Constable Cross said J.J. refused to show him his ID. J.J. kept walking, and Constable Cross grabbed his arm and turned him around. J.J. then pushed the officer. Cross grabbed J.J., and then they both fell to the ground. At some point, Cross thought J.J. was going for his gun, so he unholstered it. There was then a tug-of-war for the gun before it went off, shooting J.J. in the chest. He died within an hour of the shooting. The initial internal investigation found that there was no negligence on the part of Constable Cross. So between Betty's case taking so long to go to trial, even though the suspects were identified early on, and the shooting of an indigenous man who was just walking down the street, people wanted answers as to what was happening and if race played a role in either of these instances. The Aboriginal Justice Inquiry did find excessive force was used in the shooting of J.J. Harper. It further stated in its final report that the justice system had failed Manitoba's indigenous people on a massive scale by being both insensitive and inaccessible. As for Betty's case specifically, they stated in their report, quote, there is one fundamental fact. Her murder was a racist and sexist act. Betty Osborne would be alive today had she not been an Aboriginal woman, end quote. There is now a school in Norway House that goes through grade 12, allowing Cree students to stay with their families and with their communities as they pursue their education. It is called the Helen Betty Osborne Inu Education Resource Center, named for a young Cree woman from Norway House who just wanted an education. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.